Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's LSE Economics Department public lecture by Professor Justin Yifu Lin, who will speak on his latest book, Against the Consensus, Reflections on the Great Recession. I will say a little bit more about our distinguished speaker in a few minutes, but let me say some rules about what we're going to need to do this evening. As you already know, the lecture will address the causes of the 2008 global financial crisis, and it will offer a possible way forwards from how things have been in the global economy for the last five years. Justin will take us through evidence and reasoning that as the title of this evening's lecture suggests, will go against the consensus and so might surprise quite a few of us in the audience at large with Justin's perspective and his analysis, not least to flag right away his unconventional take on the role that global imbalances have played in the crisis. Now, my name is Danny Kwa. I'm Professor of Economics and International Development here at the LSE, and also Kuwait Professor. It's my pleasure and honor to get to chair this evening's lecture. Before we begin, can I urge you, if you've brought in your cell phones, as I'm sure everyone has done, if you could put that on silent, please. Uh, by all means, do feel free to tweet and record things on your cell phone at the LSE, we like to continue the conversation both in the lecture itself as well as afterwards. So for those of you who wish to tweet about this evening's event, please use, as suggested up here, the hashtag, hash LSE recession. Now about the event itself, Justin has kindly agreed to speak to us for about 45 minutes, following which there will be a question and answer session. I will say this again afterwards, but there are stewards in the audience who will have roving microphones. Uh, please wait until the microphone comes to you, and please make your question short and to the, to the point. This evening's event is scheduled to end at 8 p.m. In the interest of getting as much of a conversation, as much participation going as possible, if your question does extend to its own mini lecture, <laughs> no matter how much the rest of the audience is enjoying you, I'm going to have to be bad cop and ask you to stop if it does come to that. Let me turn now to our speaker. Among his very many accomplishments, Justin Lin holds an honorary doctorate from LSE. Justin now lives in Beijing and is professor at Peking University's National School of Development. But, as you will know, Justin has lived, worked, and taught in both West and East. You will all also know that Justin was the first World Bank chief economist from a developing economy, to a point where, in the words of a former World Bank colleague, Justin is, quote, the one guy in the history of all the chief economists at the World Bank who has actually been part of the lifting out of poverty of 600 million people. 
Now, it was, of course, just as the 2008 global financial crisis unfolded that Justin took on the role of chief economist at the World Bank. So not only did he therefore have a front row seat at the worst global economic and financial crisis in close to a century, Justin also brought to that position a sensibility and an experience that was a half world different from the conventional wisdoms embedded in the transatlantic axis of developed Western economies. And indeed, it is that same mix of conventional wisdom as well as its rejection that Justin brings to all of the discussions that I've been fortunate enough to have with him and to bring to our discussion this evening. So if you could join your hands together and join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Justin Lin. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's a great honor for me to come back to LSE to launch my new book. I received my honorary doctorate degree last year, and I gave a number of talks about my work. And today, it's a new book based on my experiences and thinking when I was the chief economist at the World Bank. I joined the World Bank in 2008, right before the eruption of this global crisis. And as a chief economist of the World Bank, certainly I wanted to understand what are the causes of the crisis and what is the way out of the crisis and how to prevent the happening of the crisis in the future. Can I move just okay? And as I saw in my talk, there will be the contents that I like to cover. Um, we know the global crisis that happened in 2008 was preceded with uh, about 10 years of enlarging global imbalances. And a commonly accepted view was that the global crisis was triggered by these global imbalances. Because of the global imbalances, some countries in the world accumulated a lot of foreign exchanges denominated in the US dollars. And they used the US dollars to buy the treasury bill in the US, which replaced the interest rate and because the interest rate was so low, it encouraged all kinds of speculative activities in housing, in equity market, and also the prices of house and equity market, uh, equity market increased substantially. And due to the wealth effect, people, they spend a lot of money on consumption and uh, causing the you know, global imbalances. But at the same time, when the bubble burst, it turned into 
the crisis that we observe. It was a very commonly accepted hypothesis. And then what causing the growing global imbalances? There are three you know, hypotheses about that. The first one was East Asian economies. They pursue export-oriented development strategies because they exported so much, certainly, according to this hypothesis, they accumulate a huge trade surpluses and they're turning into their you know, accumulation of the foreign reserve. And the second hypothesis was that each Asian economies, they encountered a crisis in 1998-1999 and they learned a lesson Although we know that East Asian economy performed quite well in terms of economic development since the 1960s, 1970s, but they understood without sufficient accumulation of the foreign reserves, they may expose themselves to the speculative attack, and that will have a consequence of the crisis and what happened in 1998-1999. And so for the purpose of accumulation of the foreign reserves. They export a lot. That was the second hypothesis. But the most you know, accepted hypothesis about the global imbalances was the Chinese government manipulate the exchange rate, artificially devalue the Chinese currency, increase the competitiveness of China's export, and that causing the trade surplus in China to be increasingly large, and China accumulated a huge amount of foreign reserve. Those three hypotheses, if you look, the logic seems to be feasible, and uh, seems to be consistent with some of the, ob- the observed phenomena, because as you know, East Asian economies, they accumulate a large amount of foreign reserve, and uh, especially China. But whether they are the true reason for the global imbalances or not, we know that East Asian economies, certainly, they all have huge you know, trade surplus and uh, reserve accumulation. But at the same time, we know East Asian economies, they started to adopt this kind of export-oriented development strategies in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, before 2000, their trade surplus actually was quite small. Because for an export-oriented development strategies, certainly, on the one hand, they export a lot. But they also import a lot. And at the balance, actually, the surplus, the surplus was quite small. And for some country like Korea, most of the time, they had a trade deficit instead of trade surplus. The trade surpluses for the East Asian economy did not become large after 2000. And so you can, we cannot use a strategy that had been pursued for more than half a century to explain what happened only in the last 10 years. That's my first refutation of this hypothesis. And the second hypothesis, the self-insurance motivation. Again, East Asian economies they increased their trade surplus and accumulation of foreign reserves after 
the 1998-1999 crisis. But at the same time, we find some other countries, they don't have whatsoever reason to accumulate foreign reserves, but they also increase their trade surpluses. For example, Japan. Japan Japanese yuan is a global reserve currency. So for Japanese, they don't have any motivation for accumulate foreign reserve as a way for self-insurance because they can always print money to pay their debt and whatsoever. And similarly, Germany, Euro is a global reserve. And so Germany does not have Germany does not have to accumulate you know, reserve for self-insurance. That's the first, you know, inconsistency. And secondly, other developing countries, during this period of time, they also increase their reserves substantially. Because if some countries manipulate their policies in order to increase their trade surplus and foreign reserve accumulation, other countries competing with them should reduce their trade surplus and the reserve. But what we observe is that during you know, the last 10 years, you know, during the, you know, in, in 2000 and on world, we find most other developing countries, they also increase their trade surplus and reserve. And that cannot happen because you know, it should be a zero sum game, right? And moreover, the accumulation of foreign reserve is far beyond the need for self-insurance. Because by the time of 2007, the foreign reserve in China has already exceeded two trillion. It is much larger than any need for self-insurance. So that's my you know, refutation of the second hypothesis. And the third hypothesis, that is China's exchange rate. And in effect, it was the most widely used explanation for the global imbalances. And the issue about China exchange rate was first raised in 2003. Because starting from 2002, the global imbalances were, on the other hand, the deficit of US trade surplus started to increase quickly. And uh, since 2003, China has been accused of manipulation of the foreign exchange, exchange rate and uh, causing the trade surplus in China to increase and, uh, and, and the trade deficit in the US to become larger and larger. But if we look carefully, in 2003, the trade surplus in China was smaller than the trade surpluses in 1998. In 1998, the trade surplus in China was 47 trillion, uh, 47 billion US dollars. And in 2003, the trade surplus in China was only 27 billion US dollars, much smaller than 1998. But in 1998, during the East Asian financial crisis, China did not devalue its currency. So, the ex so, you know, so, so globally at that time, the conviction was China's exchange rate was over Value instead of undervalued. And the overvaluation of Chinese 
exchange rate was commonly you know, believed up to 2002. And all of a sudden, in 2003, the conviction changed to the Chinese currency was undervalued. But if Chinese currency was undervalued in 2003, the trade surplus in 2003 should be much larger than 1998. But in effect, it was smaller. And China's exchange rate, China's foreign uh, 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 trade surplus did not become large until 2005. But when China's you know, trade surplus become large with the US, China's trade deficit with other East Asian economies like Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, and some advanced countries like Germany also become large, larger and larger. And so on the one hand, the trade surplus with the US was large, but the trade deficit with other economies was also large. And uh, so it's hard to argue that only because of trade surplus with the US was large and the Chinese currency was undervalued. And also, between 2005 and 2007, Chinese exchange rate, again the US dollars, appreciate more than 20%. But the trade surplus with the US did not decline at all. In effect, it continued to become larger and larger. And also during this period of time, many developing countries which competed with China, they also increased their trade surplus. And all this evidence were inconsistent with the argument that China currencies was undervalued. And so all these three hypotheses, no matter is the export-oriented development strategy or the self-insurance hypothesis or undervaluation of Chinese currency, or point the figures to the East Asia economy for the reason of the global imbalances. And the global imbalances, I argue, on the one hand was the trade deficit of the US, and on the other hand was the trade surpluses of other economies. And we know that US started in 1960s, always had a trade deficit with each Asian economies. And what we found about that, in 1990s, the US trade deficit with the US Asian economies contributed to about 51% of the US trade deficit. But from 2000 to 2007, the US trade deficit with East Asian economy did not increase. Actually, it declined from 51% to 38% of the US trade deficit. So that means what? The reason for the US trade deficit was not the policies in the East Asian economies, because the contribution of East Asian economies to the US deficit actually declined instead of increase. And that means that East Asian economy was a smaller reason for the global imbalances than other reasons. And, uh, and, 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 and US, actually, yes, increased the trade deficit with China. And the reason why China contributed to such a large trade deficit of the US was because of relocation 
of the production of labor-intensive products from other East Asian economies to China. So they concentrate their trade surpluses to China. But it's a share, actually, it, it declines. And so from all this evidence, we need to look for a new hypothesis, which can explain all the empirical evidence that we can assemble so on. And I think the only hypothesis, only reason, which can consistent with all the evidence is that the global imbalances was triggered by policy mistakes in the US. I think the policy that contributed to the global imbalances first was the financial deregulation in the US in the 1980s, which allowed the financial institution to increase its leverage. In the past, one US dollar deposit can only give five US dollars long. Now it could support 10 US dollars long. And because liquidity increased, certainly, it will contribute to the you know, investment in housing, investment in equity, and others. And equally important was in 2001, the burst of the dot-com bubble in the US. And we know that when a bubble burst, the US should encounter a period of recession and so on. But to avoid, avoid, to avoid the recession, the Federal Reserve adopted a very aggressive policy to lower the interest rate in the US from 6.5% in 2001 and to only 1% in 2003. With this kind of low interest rate, plus the high leverage, certainly it increased the liquidity in the US and the short-term speculative activities. And those kind of short-term speculative activity, you know, causing the house, housing prices in the U.S. to increase quickly. And with the bubble building up in the housing uh, 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 prices, the household in the U.S. started to feel they are wealthy. And there are some kind of wealthy effect, wealth effect to encourage the household increase their consumption. And especially the financial innovation allow the household to capitalize their gain in the housing prices. And that's how they overconsumed. In the 1990s, the household debt as a percentage of their disposal income was about 70% of their disposal income. But because of the wealth effect and the financial innovation allowed the household to capitalize the increase in housing prices, so the household debt as a percentage of their GDP, of their household disposal income, increased from 70% to 130% of their disposal income. And this kind of overconsumption certainly will rely on the import to satisfy their demand. And also, because of the you know, the, the 9-11 and the subsequent Afghanistan war and the Iraqi war, the U.S. government also encountered trade deficit, uh, uh, the, the fiscal deficit. Since the household and the government both have deficited, so that's the reason why 
that the U.S. had a trade uh, a deficit. And this kind of deficit could you know, continue for a long time only because the U.S. dollars is a, what, uh, is a, a global reserve currencies. And China become a major beneficiary of the U.S. trade deficit was because U.S. China was a major supplier of labor-intensive manufacturing goods which consumed in the U.S. And, uh, and China increased a large you know, amount of export to the U.S., but most of these kind of labor-intensive products were some kind of processing product. So China, on the one hand, increased the export of labor-intensive product, but China increased the import of intermediate goods produced in other East Asian economies, as well as you know, high-income countries like Germany. And that, you know, that contribute to their trade uh, uh, surplus, what China deficit is that. And this kind of excess liquidity not only contribute to the trade imbalances in the U.S., but also encourage the short-term capital outflow to other developing countries. And as the data show, in 2000, the outflow of capital from high-income countries to developing countries was 200 billion U.S. dollars. But it quickly increased to 1.2 trillion, six-time increase of capital outflow by the time of 2007. Since the last inflow of short-term capital from the high-income country, so developing countries certainly also increase their you know, investment in housing, in equity market, and in investment. And uh, you know, that led to a period of you know, rapid growth in the developing country. And the data show from 2000 to 2007, that was the period of artist growth in the developing country since the Second World War. And those kind of investment and consumption in the developing country certainly will require you know, new investment in production and so on. And new investment in production will require capital equipment from high-income countries that also contribute to the export surplus in many high-income countries during this period of time. And the acceleration in the production activities as well as the consumption in both high-income countries and developing countries certainly also led to the demand for resources like energy and food and so on. And that was the, the reason why there was a period of price inflation in raw materials, in energy and food prices in 2007-2008. And, 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 and you know, because of large Tracer process that certainly accumulated firm reserve. And that kept the inflow to the developing country also, you know, causing the developing country to accumulate a large amount of foreign reserve. But the developing country, they cannot use foreign reserve domestically. So no matter the foreign reserve accumulated through the trade surplus or kept account inflow, they all need to use that to make investment in the country which can use dollar, that is U.S., either on treasury bill or to purchase some kind of corporate bond. And so that appeared to have a large 
capture you know outflow a foreign reserve or capital outflow from the developing country to the US. But it was a result of capital outflow or foreign reserve outflow from the US to other developing countries at the first hand. But the hypothesis that we you know I just discussed only look at the second half of the flow. They did not try to understand what was the reason for the first half of the flow. And from this, high, from this analysis, we can see if the globally, we could have a better understanding of the reason for the global imbalances in 2003 and 2004, and really try to address the issue. Maybe this global crisis could be avoided, or at least could be mitigated. I certainly also need to understand how come China stood out in this global imbalances. Certainly, the trade surplus in China was much larger than any other country. And the trade surplus certainly was a result of oversetting in China. In the academic circle, there were two commonly accepted hypotheses for the oversaving in China. One was, you know, one attributed to the lack of social safety net in China. So they say because of lack of social safety net, households need to save for their you know, provision for the old ages. And the other one was the aging in China, because China, you know, now reached the aging society, and so you know, to prepare for the old age people also need to save more. Well, I think that logically, they are all feasible. They are all plausible. But I would argue those two were not the main reason for the over-saving in China. Because if you look into the actual data, the household saving in China was about 20% of China's GDP. It is about the same level of the household saving in India. But India did not have an aging problem. And India's social safety net, although it's not good, but it's not as bad as in China. And so since household saving in China was not an outlier in a developing country, what caused China's saving to be so large was the huge corporate saving, because corporate saving contributed to about 20% of China's GDP. In other countries, at most 10%. And what was the reason for the corporate saving in China was so high? I think it was because of the legacies of the dual check transition that China adopted since 1979. And this dual check transition, that means that Chinese government continued to you know, retain certain kind of distortion in the economy to you know, favor the large corporation owned by the state or the rich people. And those kind of distortion has implication for income distribution. For example, China has a financial repression. The interest rate was lower than it should be. And only the large corporation owned by the state or the rich people, they can get financial services. And when they get financial services, in effect, they receive certain kind of subsidies. Who subsidizes them? Those ordinary people who put the money into the financial system, and they could not get the financial services. 
and in general they are poor. So if you ask the poor people to subsidize the growth of the companies owned by the state or the rich people, certainly that means income distribution will favor the rich people and large population. And we know that the consumption propensity of the rich people is lower than the consumption propensity of the ordinary people. And that was the reason why the you know, saving in China or consumption as a, as a percentage of GDP was lower than it should be. And, 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 and a similar distortion in the resources sector. China you know, is a resources scarce economy, but the loyalty levies on the resources was almost nothing. And certainly that you know, means that the wealth that should be long to the whole nation were you know, transferred to a few companies owned by the rich people. That, you know, and, and that is also another reason for the income disparity. And the third reason was monopoly in service sector, like telecommunication, transportation, and the banking sectors, and allow those firms to enjoy monopoly rent. I think those are the reasons for the income disparity. And because of income disparities, certainly, as I argue, the saving propensity would be high, consumption as a percentage of GDP would be low, and because of over-saving, this to over-investment, production capacity in China increased a lot, but domestic absorption was replaced because of the low saving, uh, consumption propensity, and uh, the gap will be filled by the trade imbalances. So if we want to address the issue of the you know, imbalance, external imbalance in China, it's very important to complete the transition from a dual-track economy to a well-functioning market economy. So that's my reasoning for the global imbalances and global crisis. And as I argue, if at the beginning of these global imbalances, we have a good understanding of the factor behind the imbalances, then the global crisis could be mitigated or avoided. But now the global crisis has erupted. And after five years, the global economy has not fully recovered yet. Currently, the main attention globally is on the sovereign debt crisis in southern European countries. Whether they can get some kind of rescue to pay back the debt when it's due. But we also know even the southern European countries like Greece, Italy, and Spain could get the rescue package if they do not carry out structural reform domestically to increase their competitiveness. Then any kind of rescue would be like a painkillers. It only buys time. It would not solve the problem. And in fact, the same problem will come back even in a much larger manner after a few months. And the structural reforms are important. I think everyone agrees. But the structural reform means what? Cut wages, welfare expenditure, and deleveraging in their financial sectors. If they can do that, certainly they will increase their competitiveness and they will you know, have ability to you know, reduce their financial risk in the future. But however, 
all those programs means contraction, means reduce investment demand and consumption demand, at least in the short run. And with that, if the government wants to implement those kind of structural reform, in the short run, the demand reduced, the growth will further slow down, the unemployment rate in the crisis hit country would increase. But we know that for the crisis hit country, their unemployment rate has already been so high. Like in Spain, it is about 27% of the unemployment rate. And especially for the young people, the unemployment rate is more than 50%. So under the kind of situation, it's politically infeasible to carry out the structural reform in a crisis hit country. In the past, when a country was hit by a crisis like we encounter now, in general, the IMF would recommend structural reform, then devalue the currency to increase the export, and use the export to create a space for the structural reform domestically. But this time, the southern European country, they don't have their independent currency, so they cannot devalue its currency. Then you can say, well, euro can be devalued to create a space for the southern European country to carry out the necessary structural reform. But the trouble is that, because the European country, the high-income country, so their products are compete with the product of the US, of the Japan, on the global markets. And we know that US also need to carry out the structural reform in order to enhance its competitiveness. But for the same reason about the concern of unemployment rate, the US has not carried out the structural reform since 2008. And Japan also needed to carry out structural reform since the birth of its housing bubble in 1991. But Japan has not carried out structural reform yet. So if European countries wanted to devalue as a way to create space for structural reform, it will be at the cost of the US and Japan. And certainly, US and Japan would adopt some kind of competitive devaluation to offset the impact from the devaluation in Euro and, 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 and that, in effect, was what happened in the past two or three years. And so I expect the Hainan country may not be able to have the space for their structural reform, and they may encounter a situation like Japan encountered since 1991. That is that they are going to have some kind of loss decades like Japan in the coming years. And during this period of time, that debt will accumulate quickly because of the high unemployment rate domestically. And if they have a high debt, then the government you know, will use expansionary monetary policy to lower the interest rate in order to reduce the cost of the government debt servicing or raising new debt. And this kind of lower interest rate will encourage all kinds of short-term speculative activities domestically you will go into the equity market, push up the equity prices to a bubble level, and everyone knows 
it's a bubble, and so it's very sensitive to all kind of information. So you're going to have a big fluctuation in the equity market in the high-income country. Not only so. It will encourage the short-term speculative capital outflow to international commodity markets like oil, rain, or gold. And to a level which, you know, is beyond any rationality. And so any kind of information can also cause a big fluctuation in its prices. That's what happened in a gold recently. It, can, it will also encourage the short-term capital outflow to emerging markets. And uh, causing a large inflow of short-term capital, many of that will go into the housing and equity market causing bubble there. At the same time, it will force the country to have you know, revaluation of its currency and reduce its export competitiveness and real economy will be hurt. And once the real economy was hurt, then the international short-term capital would have a large outflow. So that is likely to be the scenario in the coming years uh, to the developing country, causing all kinds of difficulty in a macroeconomic management. Then is that way out? I think the way out is to find a way to create a space for the crisis hit country in Eurozone, in US and Japan, to carry out its structural reform. And how to create a space? In the past, it relied on currency devaluation. No, it's not an option. I think that an alternative to that is to make investment in bottleneck religion, productivity-enhancing infrastructure. And this kind of investment, in the short run, will create the demand growth and job, just like a devaluation. But in the long run, it can self-degradation because those kind of investment, once it's completed, can increase productivity and growth. And the government revenue will be increased because of the growth. And then the government can pay back. The government can pay back the debt now. So it's a win-win of now and the futures. And uh, for the high-income country, the opportunity for the productivity enhancing bottleneck relation infrastructure is there. Just like in the UK, most of the infrastructure was you know, established about 100 years ago. They are aging, they are you know, old-fashioned, they are not efficient. So there's scope for doing that. However, I'd like to argue, overall the high-income country, the infrastructure, it's there, and, uh, and, 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 and the productivity enhancement, except for a few, may not be that large. So that means that if you only make investment in a high-income country, it may not be enough to create a space for the structural reform in the high-income country. And we know that in developing country, except for China, I would say, almost every developing country they have huge bottlenecks in infrastructure. And by investing in those kind of infrastructure, it will improve their productivity and growth in the future. And if the developing country can have a huge investment simultaneously in the infrastructure, they will create a demand for the export 
from the high-income country. When I was at, at World Bank, we did a study and, uh, you know, general equilibrium modeling, and I showed that, you know, in a developing country, every $1 investment domestically were created 70 cents of input to the developing country. And among them, among those 30, 70 cents, half of that, that is 35 cents, will be capital equipment input from my income country. So that means that if we have some kind of global recovery plan or global Marshall plan to make investment in the infrastructure, it will be a win-win for the high-income country and developing country. For the high-income country, because it creates the export opportunity. And so the high-income country could carry out the necessary structural reform and uh, allow them to return to the normal growth in the future. And for the developing country, with the investment in infrastructure, their productivity, their growth potential will be enhanced. So it's a win-win. And uh, with this, I think the G20s should be a platform <coughs> to endorse this kind of global recovery initiative. And uh, you know, the multilateral development institution like the World Bank, Regional Development Bank, there could be an institution to implement those kind of initiatives. Well, the argument for this kind of infrastructure to be self-decretation, the condition is that the use, the usage, the intensity of use of the infrastructure is high enough. And the intensity of the use of the infrastructure very much depends on the growth rate. If they have a dynamic economic growth, Certainly, the use of infrastructure will be large. And then return on the infrastructure will be high. But we know that most developing countries, they were trapped in low-income status and middle-income status. And whether we can find a way that to make the developing country, they can all have dynamic economic growth, like China or other East Asian economies. If they could have those kind of growth performance, then any investment in infrastructure can generate uh, very handsome returns. But as I said, most of them did not grow dynamically. And how to promote growth in the developing country? In fact, my talk last time at ARSE tried to analyze that, and let me summarize. Well, we need to understand the nature of economic growth in a modern time. We know that the nature of modern economic growth it's a process of continuous technological innovation and industrial upgrading. And that is the basis for continuous increase in labor productivity and income. And, and, and for a developing country, if they wanted to enter into that kind of modern economic growth, on the one hand, they should develop their economy according to their competitive advantages so they will be competitive. And if they can do that, they can also enjoy the advantage of backgrounds. So their technological innovation and industrial upgrading could be two times, three times of the high-income country. That means they can grow at seven, eight, or nine percent continuously for one decade or two decades, or even more. And the precondition for a country to have those kind of dynamic growth is that they need to have a well-functioning market institution. So 
the competition and the price signals will induce the firm to adopt technology and to enter industries according to their competitive advantage simultaneously. But since it's a process of structural transformation, so the government also needs to play some kind of proactive role for situation role to overcome the issue of externalities as well as coordination. If a developing can do that, uh, if a developing country can do that, they all have the opportunity to grow at seven or eight or higher percentage continuously for one generation or two generations. And also, if a country follow their competitive advantages in the develop in the in their development, then they will follow a pattern called the flying geese. That is, a higher income country upgrade their industries. Then the lower income country can enter into the space deep left over by the high income country and to utilize the advantage of big ones. And that is the pattern of the successful catching up country in East Asia. First start with Japan, and then the four small dragons, and then the, the Asian sevens, and then China. And uh, not only in a post-war period, the successful economy showed this kind of flying geese pattern. In the post-industrial revolution, in the 19th century and early 20th century, you can also you know, observe similar pattern of the growth you know, between the UK and uh, Germany, France, and the US. They all follow in a step-by-step when the UK upgrades industries. So that is the pattern of successful country. If the flying geese pattern was the you know, way for a developing country to enter into the new industry which they can enjoy late commercial advantages and also competitive in the market. And uh, if that is the scenario, then I would argue we may enter into the second golden age of industrialization in a developing country. It is because now China already entered into the state that China needs to upgrade its industries. But the size of China is much larger than any previous you know, uh, leading country. Like Japan, in the 1960s, Japan, the total manufacturing investment, uh, uh, employment in Japan was 9.7 million workers. And uh, in 1980s, South Korea employed 2.3 million workers. Taiwan, about 2 million. Hong Kong, about 1 million. And uh, Singapore, less than half a million. But this time, China employed 85 million workers. Almost 10 times of Japan's total you know, uh, uh, employment in manufacturing sectors. And as we know that, when Japan upgrades industry, it gives the opportunity for other East Asian economies to enter into the modern manufacturing sectors, help them to turn into dynamic economic growth. And when the East Asian economies upgrade their industries, they relocated their labor-intensive manufacturing to China, help China to enter into this you know, dynamic globalization and growth. 
And now China reached that stage. But the size of China is so large, so it's not a leading goose anymore. It's a leading dragon. And I published an article, an article on the global policies uh, October last year to you know, document and to argue for this new pattern. So that means that China will upgrade its industry. If other developing countries can follow what I argue, develop their industries according to their competitive advantages, and the government play their facilitation role to help overcome the externality and coordination, coordination issue, then the size of China means that you will have a space for almost all the developing countries in Africa, in Latin America, in South Asia, to turn into a new pattern of growth as what we observe in China. And not only China will have that kind of function. When the income in India, in Brazil, in you know, those large middle-income countries upgrade, they will also open up the space for other low-income countries. And what I say was not a theoretical argument alone. I started to argue the possibility for industrialization in low-income countries like Africa. And uh, in 2011, in March, I met with the late Prime Minister Mellis and advised him to you know, consider the opportunity of wage rights and uh, industrial upgrading in China and uh, its opportunity to open up for Ethiopia. And uh, we can see that Ethiopia has a large abundant supply of young labels. They also have, they also have the supply of laser. So the laser shoe sector should be one sector that they have latent compared advantages. So I advise him to come to China to do the investment promotion to attract foreign direct investment in the laser shoe sector to make investment in Alice. And he went to China in August 2011 and met with the delegation there, and one firm sent uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, one firm was attracted to visit others in October 2011. It immediately were convinced the opportunity in Ethiopia, and the firm recruited 86 workers immediately on the spot, sent them back to China for training of three months, and uh, set up two production lines in January 2012 only three months after. And after two months, they started to export the designers' that issues to the US market and European markets. And by May 2012, only five months later, the firm became the largest exporter of data product from Ethiopia to the global market. And in October, the firm turned into profit. And at the end, by the end of Last year, that's only in one year, the employment in the sectors expanded in that firm expanded from 600 to uh, uh, to now about 2,300, and the firm, you know, plans to expand the employment to to about 4,000, and they also have a plan to increase the cluster of data shoe in Ethiopia to about 50,000 workers within five years. So it's a story, but it's a very encouraging story. So it's possible to turn even African country to a dynamic global production 
base for the labor-intensive product. And that should be a way for them to industrialize. And if they can do that, they can grow very dynamically, the return to the infrastructure should be high. Finally, how to avoid a similar crisis in the future? As I argue, the global imbalances could become so large only because U.S. dollars is the global reserve currency. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, to use the, uh, a national currency to be a global reserve currency, there's always an inherent conflict of national interest and global interest. And uh, it cannot avoid the reserve currency country for the sake of their national interest rate at the expense of the global interest rate. And so if we want to avoid similar crises to occur in the future, we should find a way to substitute the national currency as a reserve to a supranational currency, like Keynes argued after the Second World War. Mm. And uh, currently, certainly there's a lot of the discussion of this kind of alternative. And the most discussion focuses on enlarging the role of the spatial touring right. But I think the spatial touring right would not solve the fundamental issue. Because spatial touring right is a basket of national currencies. And so the inherent conflicts of national interest and the global interest is not addressed. So it's better to find a new supranational currency. And I propose in my book to use a new currency called paper gold as a substitute. It's a fiat company. Uh, it's a fiat currency issued by the global authority. And if this kind of proposal is adopted, then it can avoid all the drawbacks that we observe now. First, if we use the paper gold, then we can avoid the use of gold, real gold, as a reserve. Because if we want to use the real gold as a reserve, it has some kind of deflationary tendency. When the global economy you know, grows very fast, or the trade grows very fast, because gold cannot increase parallel to the increase in the real economy or in trade. But for the paper gold, it's a fiat money, so you can increase the supply according to in a certain formulas based on the condition of the real economy. <coughs> Secondly, you can also avoid the conflicts of national interest and the global interest because it's a supranational currency. And the third one, you can also avoid this current trouble in Eurozone. The current trouble in Eurozone is that the you know, individual country, they does not have their own currency. So when they were hit by a crisis, they cannot devalue its currency to create a space for the, for, for the structural reform. But uh, in this new paper gold system, they can do that. Certainly, this proposal had to be accepted. Whether this proposal will be accepted or not, certainly depends on the, you know, the global economy in the future. And my expectation is that the global economy in the future may be very you know, volatile. 
And uh, the reserve currency country, no matter it's US or Euro, and uh, or Chinese yuan in the future. The least advantage or the adverse impact of the very volatile, the global monetary system would be bad for the reserve currency country and also for the non-reserve country. Since everyone loses under the current situation, certainly there's a possibility for people to be rushing, to adopt a new system which is better than the, any other alternative. So that's what I argue in my book. So I summarize my main ideas here and uh, welcome your comments and uh, also discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justin. Um, before we begin the round of questions, can I just, as chair, simply say that that lecture was simply majestic in scope, analysis, and ambition. I've never yet been, I've never been in a different lecture where someone is talking about international currencies, large-scale global organization, a Marshall Plan for World Recovery, and at the same time, veers into a discussion of designer women's shoes, <laughs> where we can have a convergence of the Manolo Blanik, Christian Lobotan's analysis together at the same time that we've got a discussion of paper gold. Um, Justin introduced the topic by re-examining the pattern of causality in global capital flows. He overturned the conventional wisdom by showing us evidence how a traditional way of thinking of the cause of global imbalances as being East Asian or Chinese actually does not square with the facts. He offered an alternative explanation that is consistent with all of our observations. And then he went on to describe how there is and although there are difficulties in the global economy, he proposes what he calls a win-win situation with a global infrastructure initiative, a GII, which is a counterpart of a Marshall Plan based on investment worldwide that has nice properties. It is self-liquidating. It is in the incentives of all of us to subscribe to that. That squares a picture that he had brought to us six months ago where he talked about the elixir of growth and how the global economy can continue to develop, how China being as massive as it is when it upgrades in the spectrum of developmental goods, it leaves a lot of space for countries like Ethiopia and elsewhere in the world to be pulled along with it. And at the very end, he gave us this ray of hope about how a, a reorganized global monetary system that removes the incentives, the perverse incentives of national reserve currencies like that what we currently have to a paper gold system that has, again, once again, from an economist's perspective and policymaker's perspective, satisfactory and desirable properties. So well done, Justin, really excellent. Um, can we open now for questions? And if I may, can I implore you to wait until you get a microphone from a steward. Identify yourself quickly and then ask a short question. Can I collect three questions? Yes. Time? Yeah, we'll take a bunch of questions and then Justin will answer them. So, gentleman in black with the jumper. I'm Ali Alagra. 
uh, Emeritus Professor of International Economic Integration. I met Justin a long time ago. Uh, I agree with the Chairman's evaluation of your presentation. Fantastic. What I worry about is you're going to be accused of saying that a lot of people attributed the causes of the crisis to the Asian economy. In this part of the world, the two major reports after the crisis, the Delusory Report for the European Union and the Lord Turner Report for Britain, have put the blame directly on the United States, and they only mention the imbalances in terms of what you mentioned, the surpluses, reduced rate of interest, and encourage people to borrow for housing. So I hope that does not distract from your general message. Okay, uh, John, in the middle here, if you could, maybe you could just speak up. Yeah, John Ron, I'm senior fellow at Chongyang Institute, Ren University in Beijing. So, two points. One is, I was slightly surprised you didn't mention that the, the imbalance of the US, the deficit, must be due to decline in savings or rise in investment, statistically due to decline in savings. But you showed the same decline in savings rate starting in the 1980s, long before China became any serious banking situation. Secondly, I think the, the, pro sorry, sorry, the problem of your proposed outlook is that the Marshall Plan was an integration of economics and politics. It was by the United States and the United States gained politically. What you propose, while very desirable economically, would increase the power of the surplus countries, that is Japan, Germany and China, at the expense of the United States and is therefore likely to be resisted by the United States. So what would be your reply to these points? Thanks. And first question from upstairs. The gentleman in the white shirt down here in the second row. And then I'll get the rest of you afterwards. Yes, go ahead. Um, was, it so, Bob, was it Bob Zellick who said um, the G8 is too small to be relevant and the G20 is too big to be effective? Aren't you expecting too much of the G20? Okay. Thank you. So if we could take this first three and then we'll come back. Well, I, I think the first two actually is not real questions. They just comment me to consider some other facts. And uh, I think those are agree, you know. I provide some kind of analysis. And uh, some people provide analysis on these right angles. But overall, the ideas are similar. You know, East Asian economies was not the main reason for the global imbalances and the global crisis. And we need to look for other reasons. And the other reasons are most likely coming from the U.S. because they are the largest economy in the world, and they have the global reserve. Actually, they are just the money supply of the world. And if they have unlimited supply of currencies, certainly you are going to cause bubbles either in the U.S. or the world. And when bubble burst, you are going to have global crisis. Then coming to the issue of the savings in the U.S., as you observe, yes, starting in the 1980s, the saving rate in the U.S. started to decline. But it accelerated after 2000. And I think the main reason was the high leverage plus the low interest rate. And that encouraged the excess liquidity through, you know, the, through the speculative outflow and so on. And, and uh, the politics and the economics, I think the first one we can do is to have good economic analysis. We should not take the politics into consideration at the first one of analysis. And secondly, at the end, whether a good analysis will be adopted or not, 
very much depends on politics. But if you know the U.S. whether the U.S. will reject this kind of proposal or not depends on trade-off. I think that if the U.S. cannot find a good way out, then they may encounter something like the lost stakes in Japan. And and the proposal I you know put forward will create the alternative that may provide hope for the high-income country to have the space for their structural reform simultaneously. And I think that is the way out, ultimate way out for the crisis. And so I think that there may be a hope. Economic rationality may prevail at the end. And G20, again, you know, if we cannot find a good way out, then either G2 or G8 or G20s need to come to an agreement. Because I think no country is to no country's benefit to allow the global economies, especially in the high-income country, to be you know, trapped in something like Japan for 20 years or more. And, and so if, that is, you know, if we try out all the other alternatives and we still cannot find a way out, I'm sure people will be more willing to sit together and uh, to agree on something which is a win-win for every country. Thank you. Can I just uh, push a little bit on the, the first question? First question suggested, Justin, yeah. that you know, perhaps you know, looking at the global imbalance issue isn't really spot on anymore because Turner Report and others have simply focused on financial or malfeasance within the financial sector. But there continues to be this view that it was global imbalances that provided the fuel that investment bankers through malfeasance subsequently lit. And that fuel question remains there. Moreover, I think that the kind of policy discussions that we're having within the Eurozone now, where many, many Eurozone economies are blaming Germany, using language very similar to what the United States used when it blamed China, I think that remains very much on the policy agenda. In any case, um, questions? Okay, in back. Hi. What is the Great Divergence, please? Okay, he wants to know about what the Great Divergence is. So we'll come back. And then the question with the woman in the, next to the camera. Christina Yan Zhang. Um, professor, you know, we have heard a lot of discussion about the internationalization of RMB, especially with London hosting it, has get a lot of excitement, you know, in Britain. And on the other hand, we see all the Asian, you know, Southeast Asian countries tend to integrate their economy by 2015. So how does these two key factors fit into your very exciting Marshall Plan? Mm. Thank you. Okay, now there was a question. The gentleman in the gray suit? Yes. You could stand up. So the microphone comes to you. My name is Sun Fu Ma, and I graduated from the school two years ago. My question is uh, regarding your proposal of the uh, paper gold. I just want to ask uh, who do you think is the appropriate authority of issuing such global reserve? Because I can't see the difference between the paper gold and the SDRs. If uh, such authority is, uh, is, uh, consist of, is composed of the representatives of different uh, global major economies. Okay, thank you. So okay, Justin, maybe I can you. Yeah. The first one about the great divergence is 
a term to describe the enlarging in the income gap between the industrialized North or the advanced country and the developing countries. Because we know that at the turn of the 18th century, the rich country and the poor country, their gap of per income was about, at most, about five times. But now, the difference can be 100 times or even 200 times. And this kind of trend called great divergence. And the second one about the globalization or IMB, because now China is the second largest economy in the world. And most likely by the time of 2020, China may you know, overtake the US to be the largest economies. And China trade is likely to be the largest you know, trading country in the world. And by that, certainly, the RMB will become increasingly important role in the trade, in the global financial system, and so on. So I would say that the globalization of RMB is a trend that cannot be stopped. However, as I argue in my book, you know, I do not have time to elaborate, but I argue in my book, you know, we are moving towards a system that with three major reserve currencies. That is U.S. dollars, and Euro, and Chinese yen. And, uh, and, 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 and then a few other you know, reserve currencies like British pound, Japanese yuan, and, uh, Swiss, uh, uh, and Switzerland franc. But this kind of multiple reserve currencies, people, some people argue, may be more stable than uh, U.S. dollar to be the dominant reserve currency. Their argument was that you know, when you have a multiple reserve currencies and the real economy that behind the reserve currency was, were uh, about the same size, then there's some competition among the reserve currencies. Mm -hmm. And the competition may become a discipline in a mechanism. But this argument, the precondition, is that all the reserve currency countries, they are healthy. They don't have structural problems. But in my book, I argue almost every reserve currency country, they have their own structural problems. And because of that, it will give a lot of opportunity for speculators to, you know, to take advantage of those kind of structural uh, 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 problems and then causing a huge volatilities in the international monetary system. And uh, if it has uh, huge volatilities in the global, you know, monetary system is better for every country, including the reserve issuing country and uh, the reserve using country. And that's the reason why I propose to have an alternative. And that alternative, as I argue, can address all the issues that we may conceive of now. Uh, and, and that is a much better system. Then who will issue the paper gold? Well, it be you know, certainly the global monetary authorities. And the global monetary authority, just like, you know, just like WTO, it should be an international organization and, uh, and uh, with uh, the authorities that agree upon by all the member countries. And, uh, you know, so IMF is a candidate for doing that, but uh, we can have other, you know, monetary authority, but that depends on the design and depends on the agreement. Thank you. Okay, we could go upstairs now. Uh, first, the gentleman in the green sweater on the very edge. 
uh, right, you're standing right next to him. Okay. okay. Thank you. My name is uh, Tomas. Um, I have a question with regards, especially in the news, uh, with offshore centers and tax havens, uh, but also shadow banking industry with estimates ranging between 20 and 40 trillion uh, dollars being in size. How do you think that would hamper any any global recovery program in, in terms of policies that affect the real the real economy? Uh, in addition, having this the shadow banking industry and plus tax havens as well. Okay, thank you. If you could just hand the microphone to the gentleman in front of you. Thanks. Thank you, Suilio Oxford University. Uh, my question would like uh, to ask how the rapid uh, industrialization in China and other emerging economies may affect uh, its domestic uh, marketized transition, especially when the surplus labor has been absorbed. Thank you. And then the front row, up again upstairs. Thank you, certainly very inspirational uh, talk. <clears throat> I've got two questions, but one doesn't require an answer, other does. The first one, I mean, blame game, I think one can only go up to certain, uh, some point, a um, certain point. I think blame game is really uh, useless. I mean, uh, most of, for most part, it is useless. But one wonders why China's surplus was consistently so high for so long. The economic theory suggests that if that happens, the, uh, <clears throat> what you call the, uh, the currency tends to uh, appreciate and... Uh, and, uh, and uh, works against the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the consistent uh, um, <coughs> uh, surplus. We leave this question. Uh, I don't need to answer that. But the question that I want to answer, uh, your, the, your global initiative, your global infrastructure in initiative, is a wonderful idea. And you say that it will be self-liquidating. Uh, self what about, how will, I mean, what would it do to the interest rates? When presently interest rates are very low because invest, people are not investing. But when we have this global uh, infrastructure initiative, what will happen to, global, uh, to interest rates? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll take this round and then I'll come back. Well, for the shadow banking and tax haven, certainly that increased the you know, possibility of volatility in a global system. And uh, that allow you know, the speculators to, uh, to, to exploit that possibility and, and that causing the large inflow and outflow of the speculative capitals. So that contribute to this possibility of volatility, as I argued. Then about you know, the Chinese economy, now the wage rate increased very rapidly in China because of the you know, surplus level has, in China has been you know, reduced, and, and, and the increase in the wage rate certainly means that China need to upgrade its industry to higher value-added areas. And because of that, I argue China may dip up the opportunities for other developing countries to enter. But at the same time, I think China still has a huge scope for industrial upgrading because China is still a middle-income country. And most industry in China are in the middle range Meter technology industries. And so China certainly can continue to upgrade its, its industries and uh, so can accommodate, accommodate the rising wages. And that is also necessary for China to increase its income. And uh, I think that this is, you know, uh, 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 
some kind of economic adjustment process that every growing country will encounter. Then the last one related to the interest rate in the global economies if you know, the Marshall Plan is adopted. I think that the interest rate may not increase that much in the sense that you know, the global investment infrastructure uh, uh, initiative will be contributed by the reserve issuing country and the reserve surplus country. And as long as the reserve issuing country increases its money supply to support this global initiative, then the interest rate may not increase. Only if they will not increase the money supply, and then the demand for fund increase will push the price increase. But as I argue in my book, the reserve issuing country, they encounter one alternative is to increase the money supply to finance their government debt, will increase money supply to finance the global uh, infrastructure initiative. And I would argue to support the global initi uh, infrastructure initiative is a much better option than to you know, support their government debt. Uh, uh, so, so that should be some kind of neutral. In fact, interest rates might actually fall yeah. with the release of so much funds from these reserve countries. Yeah. Okay, next round of questions. The gentleman in the middle and then in the back. So if you could uh, stand up and then the microphone will come to you. Okay. Um, hello, Mike, Michael Burke. Uh, two points, really. One is to reinforce the professor's uh, comments about the source of global imbalances. Because one of the things I've noted over a long period is that um, the United States runs a trade deficit with Britain, hmm. which is quite an achievement, um, because no, no one else does. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that may be a clue as to the real source of the global imbalances. But um, secondly, it's a, it's a question, really. Um, I think a global infrastructure investment initiative would be a fantastic thing. But what we saw during the crisis is that China was one of the very few countries, certainly the only major economy, where that actually took place. And there are lots of people who wish a, an increase in investment. Uh, George Osborne talks about it, the leaders of the European mm -hmm. Union, uh, President Obama, and so on and so on. But they have yet to deliver one. And I wonder, isn't there something about the structure of the Chinese economy which allowed wishes to turn into actions. Okay, thank you. Uh, if you could hand the microphone two, three rows back to you, the gentleman in the very fashionable black. <laughs> thank <Good> you. you. <laughs> uh, Joe Mitchell, uh, SOAS. Two very quick questions. You mentioned um, the need for structural reforms in the developed economies to increase competitiveness, and that if this was done now, it would cause recession and unemployment but this uh, infrastructure project will allow space for this to take place. Could you tell us some more about exactly what you see the structural problems as? Is it a competitiveness uh, problem which requires wage cuts in the developed countries, um, or is there some, uh, some further element to it? Second, very quick question. What are the environmental um, implications of the second industrial golden age? Right, thank you. And then the gentleman up against the wall... If you could hand the microphone over, up against the wall, 
Okay, Professor Ling, thanks for your presentation. My question is, what's the difference between Banco and uh, Paper Gold? And could you please elaborate on the political feasibility for the introduction of Paper Gold as substitute for U.S. dollar? Thank you. Thank you. Can we take one more question? The okay. woman in the um, very nice T-shirt up here. <laughs> so, yeah, if you could stand up so that they can see you. Yes. Thank you for your wonderful presentation. I've been uh, previously a Peking University student, so it's very great to meet you here. Uh, and my question concerning the, uh, the financial reforms that Chinese government has taken after the financial crisis, one of them is about today's Chinese Central Bank's Monetary Policy Community uh, Committee has raised a proposal about the uh, market, uh, marketization and liberalization of the interest rate. And what's your opinion about this? And what do you think can quit the process of the uh, marketization of the interest rate in China? Thank you. Thank you. Justin, can I turn to okay. you? Okay. Very good. The first question is that there were many talks about infrastructure investment in Britain, in US, and also in Eurozone but we did not see much actions. I think the reason was because of there are some debates in the high-income country. Some follow you know, more conventional ideas that to say if the government want to make investment in infrastructure, then they may encounter something like, the, uh, something like a Ricardian equivalence. That means in a short run, the demand increase because of government investment and create a job but in the future, the government need to return those kind of expenditure by increasing the deficit and so on, uh, 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 and, 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 and by increasing the tax rate, uh, either by inflation or express tax rate. And they argue any kind of government expenditure will not be effective to stimulate the demand in the short run. And because that was, uh, you know, a doctrine by many peoples, and so it's very hard for the government to move. But what I argue is different because I argue productivity enhancing type of investment. And, and, uh, and uh, the, the old doctrines, in general, they did not put into that consideration. They, traditionally, the government in a stimulus can be you know, consumption support, which will not increase the productivities or by digging a hole or paving a hole, and those kind of activities certainly will not uh, increase productivities. But because of people, they use doctrine instead of analysis. So they, they blind their eyes to the new opportunities. And so it's very important for us to you know, make our ideas understood by people. And fundamentally, if most people are convinced by the opportunities, then the politician will gain enough support for carry out those kind of uh, investment. And that's very important. I hope that you and others will help me to promote my books and to make this an option for a win-win way out for UK, for the high-income country, and a beneficial for the low-income country as well. Mm-hmm. And then about the second question, the... Uh, 
the social. Okay, well, well there, there were two parts to the second yeah. question. One was, you know, the, what your what your your view is on the exact nature of the structural problems in many okay. of the advanced oh, okay. economies, and also then the environmental yeah. implications. Well, the structural problem in the advanced country certainly can be different in different countries. Like in the Southern European countries, I think their wage rate is higher than their productivity level. Their social benefit is also higher than what is affordable. Mm. So certainly they need to you know, eliminate that. Mm. And in the U.S., I think one of the structural problems is the health system. Healthcare system is very inefficient. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. spend about 17%, 17% of their GDP on healthcare. But actually, the coverage is much lower than many other countries with a lower percentage of expenditure. Mm-hmm. That's one area. Mm-hmm. So country may be different, but they all have some kind of structural weakness. Mm-hmm. And to make in their you know, economic system cannot be competitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, a, in, in, in the case of Japan, it was... They are non-tradable sectors. It's very inefficient. And, and, and so country is different in the source of their structural problems. The environmental issue. I think that environment is a good you know, target for this kind of productivity enhancing investment. Because we know global warming and environmental degradation is a real threat to the sustainable growth in any countries. And uh, to improve that, certainly you need to invest, to, to have investment. And it's much better to make investment now, especially when the economy is sluggish in the growth. And then in the future, you know, the cost will be high, and especially if the global, if the global economy returns to normal, if you want to make further investment, it may cause overheating in the economy. So I think environment should be one areas for this kind of productivity enhancing type of investment. And what's the difference between the banko and the paper gold? I think the one difference is that banko is based on a basket of commodities, including gold, grain, and other commodities. So, and uh, and because of that, actually, it's had this, this kind of deflationary pressure mm-hmm. because gold or other commodity cannot increase proportional to the growth in the real economy and in trade. But paper gold mm-hmm. does not have that constraint. I think that is one of the major difference between the paper gold and the bank gold. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether this kind of new proposal will be accepted or whether the paper gold may encounter the same fate as the bank gold. In terms of design, Banco is much better than to use the U.S. dollar as a reserve. But we know after the Second World War, U.S. economy contributed to about more than 50% of global GDP. At the same time, the U.S. economy was raging, was quite dynamic. So under that situation, when the U.S., you know, for its own interest, it, does not want, it did not want to adopt the Banco, and other countries also had confidence on the U.S., so that's the reason why you know, uh, the, the, the Keynes proposal was not adopted. But as I argue, by the time of 2020s, U.S. economy currently, it reduced from more than 50% down to currently about 20 to 23% of global GDP. 
by the time of 2020, I think the U.S. share of the global GDP will be less than 20%. And the Chinese economy could also contribute to about 20% of global GDP. Euro areas, again, another 20% of global GDP. So none of them were dominating. That's one thing. And the second, as I just argued, the global monetary system at that time could be very volatile. And it's not good for everyone. And since no one was dominating, and the system was no good for everyone, so I think their opportunity that you know the proposal along the line of improved version of Banco may be entertained in the global discussions, and we need to prepare for that. And so that's the reason why I published the book to prepare that. <laughs> and regarding the financial reform, as I argue, China is a transition economy. China is a developing country. China still has a structural problem in many areas, and in the financial sector, certainly is one areas. You know, when I argue the global imbalances, I argue China had a financial repression. That means the interest rate was artificially replaced, and as a result, income favored the large corporation and rich people. And so, the marketization of the financial system allowed the interest rate to reflect the supply and demand would be an improvement. But at the same time, I think the distortion in China's, China's financial structure is not only in the prices of the capital. It also related to the structure. Because China's financial system was dominated by the active market as well as the big banks. But 70% of production activity in China is still carried out by small agricultural households. And a small and a micro enterprises in the service sectors or the manufacturing sectors. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, if China still, you know, the financial system in China is still dominated by equity market or big banks, then those small guys would not be able to get the financial services. So in terms of financial sector reform, I think in addition to the marketization of the interest rate, it is also important to remedy this kind of you know, distortion in a structure. That means China also needs to allow the development of small and local financial institutions, including financial bank, so the financial services can reach the small guys. Thank you. Um, okay, thank you very much. Now, I know there are lots of questions still, and I, but I'm afraid given the time, I'm going to have to call this to a close. Before everybody leaves, just give me 30 seconds. Now, you can tell, I hope, that from Justin's energy and enthusiasm, he's not just here giving a lecture. He is a man with a mission. Part of that mission involves disseminating the ideas that he's talked about as broadly as possible. To that end, there's a, a bookstore just outside this lecture theater. Okay, wait. Uh, Justin has kindly agreed to do a bit of book signing, so if you get a book from there and you come up here, you can then also ask him the penetrating question that you've been unable to get to. So there's a book signing event that Justin is now going to be engaged in. Uh, two things that I've got left to do. First of all, thank all of you for you know, all your questions, for your attention, for your being here. And then finally, if I could get you to join me in thanking Justin for a truly wonderful evening. <laughs>